Well, first of all, before I get started this morning, I want to thank Jeff for all the hard work that he put into preaching last week. I have to think that both leading worship and preaching all in the same service has got to be pretty exhausting. Uh, So I'm thankful to him for doing that, and I know he put a lot of work into it. So let's give him a round of applause. And it was almost the same job. (laughs) It was really good uh, for me to have a week off. Olivia and I went to Fort Wayne for a preaching conference for a few days, got some time away from Javen, really for the first time since he's been born, honestly, getting time away from him. So that was nice. We love him, but it's nice getting away from him from time to time. So it was really good for us, kind of getting us recharged, refreshed, and back here really eager to see what Prairie View is going to do throughout the rest of this year. So... Last week, when Jeff preached, he preached week three of our six-week series going through the Psalms, looking at one genre of psalm each week. And because we're halfway through, three weeks down, three weeks to go, I figured this would be a good opportunity for us to kind of recap what it is we've covered so far. First things first, the first type of psalm we covered was a psalm of wisdom, Psalm 1. And we talked about how psalms of wisdom are not just psalms that tell us how to live good lives, They're not just psalms that tell us how to make right choices. They're psalms that tell us how to make godly choices. Even if those choices don't make our lives easier right away, even if those choices don't make our lives better right away, it's about making godly choices. Week number two was a psalm of lament. And a psalm of lament is a psalm where the person writing it is pouring out their heart to God. They're pouring out their doubts, their fears, their worries to God himself. They're talking to him like he's sitting right next to them. But even in those psalms of lament, even in those times where it seems dark and hopeless and scary, every single psalm of lament in some shape, form, or fashion contains some little glimmer of hope. Somewhere in it, there's some little tiny spark of trust where the person writing this psalm, the person lamenting the situation they find themselves in, seems to have that one little tiny bit of strength left. And they find that strength in God. And they trust in God in spite of their circumstances. And last week, Jeff talked about a psalm of thanksgiving. And I think psalms of thanksgiving are particularly important for you and I because we have so many things to do in our lives. We have huge to-do lists. We're pulled in 18 different directions. We have all these different responsibilities every single day, everywhere we go. And when we have something that's stressing us out, that's causing us worry, that's causing us grief, we get it figured out, we solve the problem, we check the thing off the to-do list, and then what do we do? We move right on down the list to the next thing. And before we can even finish stressing out about one thing, we start stressing out about what comes next. And we don't take time, as often as we should, to thank God in between those times of hardship, those times of stress. To thank God that if it weren't for him, we probably would not have gotten through the thing that we were just dealing with. But we don't usually take time to thank God. We move on to the next thing that demands our attention. The next thing demands our priorities. But instead, take time to thank God before you move on to the next stress. That's what a psalm of thanksgiving is about. And that brings us to where we are today, week four, and I'll be discussing a psalm of confidence. And the psalm that we're looking at today is Psalm 23. That's why we sang the song earlier that Jeff chose to sing about Psalm 23. 
Now, Psalm 23 is probably the most well-known psalm out of all 150. And there's one big reason why it's the most well-known psalm out of all 150. Does anyone know what it is? Psalm 23, where do you hear it? All the time. Funerals. Funerals are the reason why Psalm 23 is so well-known. If you've been to very many funerals, chances are that the person delivering the message cited Psalm 23, or it was written in the bulletin for the funeral, or it was on a picture hanging in the funeral home. But you see it everywhere you go with funerals. Another reason that Psalm 23 is popular is that it's an easy psalm to reference in pop culture. If you've seen the movie Titanic, which was a blockbuster when it came out a while ago, there's a part in the movie where Leonardo DiCaprio, Jack's character, Jack is running for these lifeboats because the Titanic is sinking. And there aren't enough lifeboats for everybody. And so there's this big bottleneck effect of everyone trying to get first into the lifeboats to save themselves or save their kids or their spouses. And so all these people are pushing each other out of the way and running for the lifeboats. And in one scene, there's a guy walking in front of Jack, and he's reciting Psalm 23. And when he gets to the part that says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, Jack's character pushes him out of the way and says, buddy, walk through the valley a little bit faster. (laughs) A lot of people get it from there. But Psalm 23 is so well known. But if you hear it about funerals, and you hear it about the Titanic sinking, how is it a psalm of confidence? Those aren't exactly the most exciting and uplifting and encouraging things, funerals and boats sinking. But this is a psalm of confidence. This is a psalm that can be uplifting and encouraging to all of us, no matter where it is that we are in life or what it is that we're dealing with. And the reason it's a psalm of confidence is because the valley of the shadow of death doesn't win. That's the reason it's a psalm of confidence. If you do not believe in an afterlife, this is not a psalm of confidence. The valley of the shadow of death is not a good thing. If you don't believe in an afterlife, or if you don't know Christ, or if death doesn't have the last say. But those who know Christ know that death doesn't win. The valley of the shadow of death ultimately doesn't win over Christ, and when we know him, it doesn't win over us either. That's why this is a psalm of confidence. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Psalm 23, and I'm going to start reading in verses 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is a psalm of David, the king of Israel. The man who's in charge, the man who has everything, the man with the wealth and the power and the reputation, all that stuff. He's got it all. He's the total package. He's the man with the plan. So he writes this psalm. And when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, it's the first verse. And I think because of that, we often overlook it. But think about the weight of that statement. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The guy who has everything. The guy who has everything you could possibly want, everything you could possibly imagine, is in effect saying, you know what? The only thing that matters, the only thing I really want, 
If everything else got taken away, I'd be okay because all I want is the Lord. All I want is my shepherd. You know, sometimes I think we say that as well. When people say, what's the most important thing in your life? We always have this hierarchy and we say, well, number one is God. Number two is family. Number three is friends. And that's, that's all that matters. But what if we lost number two and number three? Would we still be satisfied in the shepherd alone? Think about Job. After everything he lost in the blink of an eye, he was still satisfied in God. How can he have that confidence? How can we know that we would have that confidence? I like to think that I would have that confidence. I like to think that if I lost everything, that I would be totally satisfied in God, and I would say, you know what? Yeah, that stinks that I lost my friends and my family and everything, but I have God. It's all that really matters, right? I'm just as fine as I ever was. I like to think that I would say that, but would we say that? It's a pretty heavy statement to make. How in the world can David have that kind of confidence to just throw that out there? That if I lost everything that made up who I am, but I still had God, I'd be all right. I shall not want. How does he have that confidence? He makes me lie down in green pasture as he leads me beside still waters. We talked in our series through the Gospel of Mark about the role of shepherds. And how Jesus compared himself to a shepherd from time to time, especially when he was feeding a large group of people. And Mark says that Jesus had them sit down in the green grass. And we talked about the fact that Mark probably did that intentionally to evoke memories of Psalm 23, lie down in green pastures. But if you were a shepherd in this time, based on the climate that you live in, if you wanted to feed your sheep, you went from pasture to pasture. You were constantly on the move. You could never really stay put because you would take your flock to this pasture. They would eat all the grass they could. They'd get all the nourishment they could. And then it's gone. And it doesn't grow back right away. So as soon as that pasture is gone, you have to find another pasture to go to. These flocks are always on the move. They are nomads, never settling down, never truly finding a home. But this idea of lying down and green pastures seems to imply the idea that David is saying, you know what? The pastures that this shepherd provides, the pastures that the Lord provides, they don't fade away. They don't die off. We don't have to go find another pasture after we've milked this pasture for all we can get out of it. This pasture is perpetual. The providence of this pasture doesn't fade because this shepherd is unlike any other shepherd that you know unlike any other shepherd that you've seen. And the nourishment that he provides is unlike any other nourishment you'll find anywhere else. We talked also in that series, the Gospel of Mark, of how sheep are dumb. Sheep are just dumb animals. They're not the brightest animals in the world. They would often get lost. They would often fall in holes and break their legs. They would often end up walking right into an ambush of predators unknowingly. If they somehow got separated from their flock, even if the flock was in their line of sight, they wouldn't be able to find their way back. They would turn the other direction. They were not the smartest animals. And if you have this animal who isn't very smart, who can't make its own decisions, who is completely dependent upon the shepherd, the last thing you want to do is have your sheep leaning over moving water. That is just a recipe for disaster. 
to bring your sheep to a flowing river and having them stick their nose in and try to get a drink of water. Because these sheep are going to fall in before you know it. And they're going to die, and you're never going to see them again. And you're not going to be able to get anything out of them. You're not going to be able to get what you wanted to get out of them. So, shepherds would have to look for still water. Maybe it was a small pond. Maybe it was a large puddle. Maybe there were even some rocks that would somehow collect standing water after a rainfall. But you didn't want to go next to moving water, lest your sheep fall in. And the idea here is that this shepherd, the Lord, David's shepherd, he provides safety and security for his sheep. It may not be safety and security right now. There may be times when predators still come. But ultimately, if we know this shepherd, we really don't have anything to worry about. Even when the predators come, even when the water is moving fast, even when threats are right there beside us, breathing down our necks, We have safety. We have security. We have providence that doesn't fade away. Verse 3, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. I think we can all agree that our souls need restoring a lot. Because you live in the world we live in. You watch the news. You read the newspaper. And your soul just gets beat down. You get tired of reading everything you read. You get tired of seeing everything you see. The day-to-day routine just makes you want to quit. You're just tired. You just want to give up. Where do you turn for restoration? Well, there's all kinds of things that you can turn to for restoration. You can turn to wealth. You can turn to success. You can turn to work, thinking that somehow if you work so much, eventually your mind will get taken off of the restoration that your soul needs. You can turn to sex. You can turn to alcohol. You can turn to a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a husband or a wife. You can turn to a whole lot of things if you need restoration of your soul. But those things don't last. They might restore your soul for a little tiny bit, you think. But eventually, the alcohol fades away. You wake up and you're sober. And you're back in the same pain that you were in before. Eventually, your wife or your husband will let you down at some point. They're not perfect. You will be let down. The restoration isn't going to be permanent. The sex, it's a momentary pleasure. It fades away, and all of a sudden you're back where you started, and you still need that restoration. What do you turn to? David turns to God. He turns to his shepherd, because he knows that if I turn to my shepherd, I shall not want. It's the only option for David. David knows it's the only thing that will ever fulfill him permanently. St. Augustine, in his confession, said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We only find restoration. We only find satisfaction. We only find fulfillment in God himself. That is the only thing that can truly restore our souls on a permanent basis. And David gets this. David has confidence in it. David doesn't doubt it. For a second. And he continues in verse 4 about the valley of the shadow of death. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death, for you are with me. I fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You might be thinking to yourself at this point, you know what? This is all great that David has this confidence in God. I'm glad that he has this confidence in God. I'm glad that he doesn't have all these worries. But then again, he's the king. 
What does he have to worry about? He's got people protecting him. He's never going to have to worry about wealth. He's never going to have to worry about food. He's got it all. What problems could he possibly have? What would David know about my situation? And what does God know about my situation? Because right now, I'm in a valley of the shadow of death. That's how I feel right now, you might be saying to yourself. Your valley of the shadow of death could be all kinds of things. And you may be thinking that, you know what, David has no idea what it is that I'm going through. It's easy to have confidence in God when everything's going great. But what about when you're in the valley of the shadow of death? What does David know about that? Well, he knows more than we might realize. 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'm going to start reading in verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. The next few verses basically just talk about how big Goliath is and how much he really likes bronze. There's a lot of bronze. Everything he uses is made of bronze. I guess that was popular. It is the Bronze Age after all. But then he says something more. Verse 8, he stood up and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The state of Israel, the nation of Israel is hanging in the balance in this moment. Is God going to deliver them? There's a fight that's about to happen, and if they lose... The whole plan is gone. The whole plan is kaput. They are servants of the Philistines, and there's no real turning back from it. But if they win, the plan continues. Everything's going to be fine. God is with them. They're still in charge. So what's going to happen? Is God going to deliver them? Is the shepherd going to deliver his flock? Because who in the world is crazy enough to stand up to this guy? Well, there's another shepherd who's crazy enough to stand up to this guy. Verse 32. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear... And took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and tigers, oh my. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, 
go, and the Lord be with you. David is crazy enough to stand up to Goliath, the little shepherd boy, not a whole lot of rapport at this point, youngest of eight brothers, nothing too flashy about him. He's okay, but nothing that really sticks out all that much. He steps up to the plate and he says, you know what? I'll fight. I'll fight Goliath. I'll go into this valley and I'll stare down death. I will stand up to this monster that no one else wants to stand up to because you know what? I've been a shepherd. I know what it's like to stand up to predators, but it's not just that. David doesn't just cite his experience as being a shepherd as the reason as to why he can stand up to Goliath. David says, you know what? I'm a shepherd, but I also know God is my shepherd and that this is his fight and that I have nothing to worry about because he watches over his flock. So yeah, valley of the shadow of death, staring down Goliath, big deal. I can handle it. Let me at him. Saul agrees. Saul has nothing else to lose at this point. I mean, what other options do they have? Verse 42. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. David stands up to Goliath. There's a brief confrontation. Goliath doesn't think David's a threat. He's a little shepherd boy. Nothing too scary about that. The rest of the story you probably know. David grabs a few stones. He grabs his sling. He swings it around his head. And with one blow, the perfect shot is made. The stone sinks into Goliath's forehead. And Goliath falls. Death itself falls. David is staring evil right in the eye. And it wins. David wins. Evil loses. David's been there before. David's been in that valley, staring down at death itself. Maybe your valley or your Goliath isn't some giant guy wanting to beat you up or kill you. Maybe your Goliath is something else. Max Lucado wrote a book called Facing Your Giants, talking about how every single one of us has our own Goliath from time to time, that you're staring down. You're standing in the shadow of it, and you don't know what to do. You don't know how you could possibly stand up to it. You don't see how you could possibly win in this scenario. Your Goliath could be anything. It could be a divorce. It could be a job loss. It could be a physical ailment. It could be something else that no one even knows except you. There are all kinds of Goliaths that live in our lives. But guess what? They don't have to win. Because even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we walk in those valleys like the valley of Allah staring down Goliath. Guess what? The Lord is our shepherd. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. David has confidence that no other Israelite 
has. It seems foolish. It seems crazy to have the kind of confidence that David has. The other men are probably thinking, you know what? Poor guy, just a young kid, has no idea what he's getting himself into. Arrogant, naive. Let's see what happens to him. Isn't going to be pretty, but maybe we'll learn from it. Maybe other young men will learn from it. But guess what? David's confidence in God is proven to be true. He's been there before. He's been in the valley. And that's why he can speak with such confidence in Psalm 23. Finishing out that psalm, verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knows that death doesn't have the final say. He says that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Even if Goliath kills me, even if something else kills me, I have confidence in my shepherd. I have confidence that he will deliver me. I have confidence that he will lead me down paths of righteousness, that he will not mislead me, that he will not abandon me that he will not leave me in the valley exposed and vulnerable. He will be there right beside me, no matter what valley it is that I'm facing, no matter how big the Goliath is that I'm staring down, no matter how far that shadow is cast and I can't see light anywhere. God will be with him. The Lord is his shepherd. He shall not want. Our Goliath sometimes can be bigger than just circumstances in life. Sometimes we look in the mirror and we say, you know what? My Goliath is the fact that I have so many regrets and I've done so many things wrong. And how in the world could God possibly want to save me? After all I've done, all I've said, all the mistakes I've made, how in the world should I have any confidence that God would want anything to do with me? Well, you can have that confidence. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 say this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Even in the face of sin, we can have confidence. Not because of anything that we've done. Not because that we did something to somehow earn that confidence. Not that we've proven ourselves enough. But rather, because it's a throne of grace. That's the reason we can have confidence. The grace that God shows us is the reason that we can approach him with confidence and know that our sin doesn't have the final say, that death doesn't have the final say. And we can say, you know what? Even if the valley of the shadow of death ends up getting me killed, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And it's because of grace that we can say that. And grace alone that we can say that. And that grace comes from the fact that the good shepherd laid down his life for us. John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We trust in grace because the good shepherd laid down his life for us. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And because of that, we have confidence that death didn't have the last say over him and it doesn't have the last say over us. Sin doesn't have the last say over us because he was sinless. The good shepherd laid down his life for us. The shepherd watches over us. And because of that, we shall not want. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Have you placed your faith in that good shepherd? Have you placed your faith in Christ? Do you trust that his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you? Because if you do, you too can have that confidence. You can approach the throne of grace because Christ died for you. And nothing that you've done, nothing that you've said, no regrets that you have, no mistakes that you've made are too big for Christ's blood to cover. No Goliath is too big to outstrengthen the good shepherd. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, the good shepherd wins. And we can have confidence because of it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your son. Thank you for this day. Thank you that by your grace, we can approach the throne with confidence. Once again, it's not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we've earned, not because we've proven ourselves enough, not because we were born in the right place or to the right family. We trust in grace alone. And God, you offer us that. You offer us that through the body and blood of Jesus that were broken and shed for us. God, we all have difficulties. We all have hardships. We talked about that with the psalm of lament. But at the same time, we know that we can have confidence. No matter how big our hardships may be, no matter how huge our Goliaths may be, we trust in you. We trust in your grace. We trust in your power. We trust in your justice and your love and your mercy. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for him so much. We thank you that your spirit has been given to us. I pray that we can live by that spirit. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.